0: You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org.
1: Um, we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be reading verse, verses uh, 17 through 19. Um, if, the, if you don't have a Bible, um, grab one from the back of the pews. Um, please take that with you if, if you don't have one. Um, and that's we're going to be on page 994 in those Bibles found in the back of, of the pew. Hear now the word of the Lord. As, as for, for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. This is the
2: word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading today comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31 to 38. You can find that on page 844 in your pew Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And he began to teach them For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the angels. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
3: Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. very grateful to serve as a pastor here. Now, by way of orientation, we are four weeks into the season of Epiphany and into our new sermon series on identity. We've been calling this series Practicing the New Self. There are few questions as prominent or important in our society as the question, who am I? It's not only a burning question for children who are wondering about their place in the world or for teenagers who are leaving childhood behind or for college students who are individuating from their families of origin or for young adults who are learning to make their way in the world or for middle-aged folk who are coming to grips with the reality that decisions they made earlier in life have set them on a course from which it is hard to deviate. Or from those who are retired, men and women who are having to learn a new way of understanding who they are apart from their job or a career. To the elderly who are nearing the end of earthly life and are looking back and are wondering, who am I? Or maybe, who was I anyway? It's one of the most important questions any of us is going to ask. And we're going to keep asking it all throughout our lives. And we are tempted to locate our identity in so many places. Maybe we are what we do. You go to a party, you meet somebody for the first time. Within the first like 30 seconds to five minutes, someone's going to ask, what do you do? And we're not down on that question. It's not a bad question. I think it's fascinating to hear about the nature of other people's work. It's a really interesting thing to talk about. But work, job, career can be for so many people a source of identity. So maybe we are our body image. Everybody longs to be beautiful, handsome, attractive, desirable, likable. These are good things. They're not bad things. Beauty is God's idea long before it's our idea. But our pride and shame tends to rise and fall based on what, how we perceive our own bodies and, and more importantly, how we think other people perceive our bodies. Body image can be, for so many people in our image-driven, social media-influenced world, a source of identity. So maybe we are our sexual appetite. All human beings are sexual creatures. And appetite itself is not inherently bad but it, it, because, of course, it originally uh, comes from God. It's designed for our good and for our flourishing. But our appetites have a tendency to push us out of the driver's seat and get into control. And when our appetites run our lives, we come to the point where we begin to believe it really is who we are. It becomes an identity. And these three, what you do, your body image, your sexual appetite... These are the three sources of identity that we've explored over the past few weeks. And just to give you a roadmap for where we're going, in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about identity as it relates to reputation, what people say about you. And then the week after that is going to be identity and how it relates to self-possession, self-determination, being your own person. But today is a different topic. Today, we're talking about identity as it relates to wealth and lifestyle and possessions. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In one of the final scenes of that brilliant film, Moneyball, Brad Pitt's character sits down to coffee with the owner of the Boston Red Sox, is right in the closing scenes of the film, and the owner is offering him a job as general manager. And the owner delivers this like wonderfully kind of ironic little line. And it's given with only like the careless panache of somebody who's obscenely wealthy. And he says, you know, one of the great things about money is that it buys a lot of things. (laughs) And as you're sitting there watching, you're realizing, oh, what's he saying? He's saying, look, one of the luxuries that a lot of money gives you, you can kind of make life whatever you want it to be, right? You can afford to sort of shape the future, shape your life. And I wonder, for our purposes today, can money buy you an identity? You know, much of the American economy today is constructed on the theory that most Americans will answer yes, even if they don't know that's what they're doing, and then they'll spend their dollars accordingly. The constellation of clothes, neighborhood, apartment, house, car, bike, tattoos, your Instagram feed of all your latest trips to Greece and Thailand and Chile, these become not just practical things or even necessarily enjoyable things, they become expressions of identity, right? So I'm going to name a couple different kinds of people and the way they present themselves, and you'll just be able to imagine, as I describe these, the kinds of people they are, because each one of these different kinds of people is expressing an identity, You meet two people. One of them is wearing a suit with a non-iron button-down shirt, a classic watch, and leather drivers on their feet. The other is wearing a Carhartt beanie, raw denim, and Birkenstocks. These are different identities, right? Which one goes to VCU? You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I actually would, the second one sounds more comfortable. Um, You go to two people's home. Homes. One of them lives on two acres in the West End by Libyan Grove. The other lives in a newly renovated home in Churchill. One friend pulls up on a fixed wheel bicycle. The other pulls up in a Tesla. One friend has a sleeve of tattoos and orders a $7 pour over coffee at Blanchard's on Morris Street. The other wears Lululemon and carries a Stanley mug, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, hang on, that's a little, you're getting a little close to home now. I'm not making fun of you. I picked every single one of these because each one of these represents somebody that I am very close to and that I love dearly. I'm not mocking you. I love you. But isn't it true that things are never just things? So often they are expressions of identity. It's an open secret that in order to successfully market a product, you do not need to merely persuade the the customer that your product is useful or cheap or that it will make your life better. You need to appeal to their identity. And I know that there are many of you who work in marketing and advertising and, and you're brilliant at it. And you could probably explain this dynamic way better than I can. But whenever you encounter a commercial or an ad or something that's being promoted, you find yourself having to ask yourself very strange questions like, what kind of dishwashing detergent or winter coat or paint color or vacation rental defines me as a person, right? Does this product express my identity or is this product offering me an identity that I don't have right now, but I could have if I had that thing, right? we might call these consumer identities. They are for sale. You can buy this identity. You can be this kind of person. Now, let me call a timeout for a second and just describe what we're doing. Sermons about money are perhaps even worse than sermons about sexuality, right? Now, those of you that were here last week are at this point thinking like, Do we only talk about hard things at Redeemer? (laughs) No, there are other times where we talk about easy and gentle things. But last week, we talked about identity and sexual appetite. And this week is identity and money and possessions. And a sermon about sexuality is sort of almost the inverse or opposite to a sermon about money. A sermon about sexuality is all unpredictability and tension. Because we have our public sexual identities and beliefs, But then you come to church and then you're uncertain of what the pastor or the church or the denomination like believes and practices about those, right? Like you're sure of who you are, you're publicly expressive of who you are, but you're not sure about what the church thinks. The story about money is kind of the opposite, right? Because how much money we have, what we do with our money, that's very private. That's not a public thing. But we all kind of know what the church thinks, right? <laughs> Sermons about money in a church are just about getting you to give more money to the church, right? And nobody's laughing. Yeah. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all of you know that Capital One marketing campaign, What's in Your Wallet? Like, what's in my wallet? That's none of your business. That's very private. What's in your wallet is sometimes more private than who's in your bedroom, Right? Now, similar to sexuality, the Bible has many wonderful, dignifying, encouraging things to say about wealth. And similar to sexuality, the Bible also gives us a strong warning about what happens to a human being when wealth takes the place of God and gets in the driver's seat. It's a complex story. It's full of nuance, and the nuances matter. So here's just an overview of the story. The biblical story begins in creation. Humanity is made to rule under God and over the material resources of the world. To put it crassly, humans have the position of middle management in the creational order. Material possessions are a good gift from God. They're meant for his people to enjoy. And so you've got to understand the very first thing the Bible says about material wealth and possessions is they are good. And they're a gift from God and they're meant to be enjoyed. But in what uh, Christians call the fallen to sin, the material resources of the world, become a, they become bent and twisted, a means of knowing who you are and a means of expressing who you are. As so the material possessions become one of the primary things that turns human hearts away from God. You know, Jesus in his life and his teaching only names one chief rival to God. And he calls it mammon, the God of money. Only one rival to God, and he calls it money. Now, therefore, a necessary sign of the process of becoming redeemed by the gospel is that of transformation in the area of financial stewardship. And to put it crassly, again, you're not converted until your wallet, your bank account, your consumer lifestyle are converted. That sometimes, not all the time, but for many people, that's the deepest, maybe last place of conversion, Now, the biblical story ends in hope. The material world is renewed and humanity returns to its rightful vocation as stewards of the abundant resources and wealth of creation. Eternity is not marked by poverty, but by feasting and celebration, urbane culture, unmeasurable wealth, all without the corruption of greed or the pain of class division or poverty. It's a wonderful story. It's a nuanced story. In the biblical story, listen if you can, neither the rich nor the poor are stereotyped as automatically righteous or wicked. The story is far more nuanced and complex than that, and that's good news. Now, into that story, we have our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, very short, very simple. And the text begins with the phrase, as for the rich in this present age. And as I say that, or maybe as you heard it read earlier this morning, you might have, maybe 80% of us, breathed a sigh of relief oh, thank goodness, this is only for rich people. And I don't know if you know this, Pastor, but I'm actually not rich. So, you know, glad you're talking to that guy over there. There are two reasons why this is applicable to absolutely everybody. First, if we were to take you and all of your 20... and me, us and all of our 21st century life and place us in a first century context, all of us would absolutely be rich. If you're not a slave or an indentured servant or a captive of war, if you have a home and food to eat and like multiple changes of clothes, you are wealthy in a first century context. Now, I know that there might be somebody here this morning and you actually don't know where your next meal is coming from. And so if that's you, two things, one, ask for help. We would love to help you. Two, then you're not rich, not even by a first century context. And in that sense, the text is really not about you. However, part two, oh wait, it is about you. It's about everybody. Because Paul is going to go on to explain and warn how rich people tend to approach life. And it's the way we all approach life when it comes to money. So whether your bank account says you're rich or not, the posture of your heart and the habits and practices of your life may very well say otherwise. In other words, you might not have a lot of money, but you might have wealthy habits. Now, just to give you a bit more context, this, uh, these verses are taken from a book of the Bible called 1 Timothy. It's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his young protege. The letter begins with these words, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. The entire letter to Timothy is like wise counsel from a father to a son or kind of like from a mother to a daughter. It contains both direction and also warnings, but it's full of parental love. Every word is motivated by parental love. That's the tone of the whole letter. And what we're going to do as we look at these just handful of verses is we're going to see very simply the internal dynamic of identity and wealth and then the external dynamic of identity and wealth. Let's start with the inside, the internal. The text reads, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy." Charge them not to be haughty. When was the last time you were accused of being haughty? <laughs> right? It's like not a word anybody uses anymore. And it would be outrageously offensive to accuse someone of being haughty, right? Like you can accuse somebody of being a little bit arrogant, like a little bit prideful, but if you call someone haughty, you're basically saying they're a villain, right? <laughs> so what is, what is the apostle talking about? It's a warning against pride. It's a call to humility. Money has this tendency to make you proud, and here's why. No matter how you got the money, you'll feel like you deserved it, right? Right? So let's say, you were, let's say you were born into it. Let's say you're born into a family where you have inherited wealth. Well, then just by nature, you're gonna end up being a little bit entitled. You might not want to be entitled. You might believe it's a bad thing to be entitled, but just by, just by virtue of the fact that you were born into money, anyone who's not born into that is gonna look at your life and is gonna see entitlement, right? Now, the problem is, if you're the kind of person who's worked very hard for your money and you weren't born into any kind of wealth at all, When you see someone who's born into it, how do you feel towards them? Oh, you're superior to them, right? Because you worked for it and they didn't. So whether you're born into money or not born into money, money's going to make you proud. And if you have money and somebody else doesn't have money and you're the kind of person that thinks that you've actually, like, by the blood, sweat, and tears, you've gotten to where you've gotten in life, then what does that make a poor person? Somebody who's not worked as hard as you, right? This is why money tends to make us proud, And what's more, the lifestyle that a lot of money affords can actually feed your pride too. Because with money comes the ability to kind of present a more cleaned up version of yourself to the world. In order to be humble, you've got to be able to say, I'm actually not entitled to this. I actually didn't earn it. In order to be humble, you've got to be able to say, I've got more than I deserve. Not, I've got exactly what I deserve, right? Now, the text goes on to say, set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And in that phrase, uncertainty of riches, the Apostle Paul is doing kind of play on words. He tends to do this. Whenever the Apostle Paul is giving a teaching on any kind of particular topic, he tends to use words in a very poetic and skillful way. So, if you have a lot of money saved up, why are you saving up your money? It's to create certainty for the future, right? Like, that's the whole idea, If you don't have a lot of money saved up, then you do tend to feel the anxiety of instability. Yeah? If I save up a lot, I know I'm going to be okay. Whether I've got a diversified portfolio or gold bullion buried under my mattress, right? I'm going to be, no matter what happens, I'm going to be able to afford it. Hope in riches is not actually hope at all, right? Because hope is like seeking something that you don't currently have. And the whole idea of having riches is to, is to hedge your bets, It's to make a good, solid plan. You would think that Paul would write this the opposite way, that he would say the uncertainty of hope and the certainty of riches, right? And he would pit those against each other because that's what, it, that's what life feels like for us. Who knows if God will come through? I better save up a lot. That's a sure thing, right? Now, the text goes on to say, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you know who enjoys things most? Adults or kids? Kids. Kids tend to enjoy things more than adults do. Why? Because kids don't own anything, right? (laughs) Nothing is really theirs. Everything's provided by adults. That's why if you're an adult and you're parenting children, you're constantly telling them to say thank you, right? Here's your lunch. Say thank you. Here's a bed that I bought for you to sleep in and I made it for you. Say thank you, right? Like here's a school for you to go to. Here's a car that I bought that I'm driving you in. Say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? Because for a kid, everything is a gift. It's all provided by somebody else. Now, if you own everything, where are the gifts? Not very many gifts if you own everything. So how much do you enjoy stuff? Not as much because it's yours. It's not a gift. Not provided for you by somebody else. We tend to think, the kind of like American logic is, if I own something, then I will enjoy it more, right? Which is why every time our family like goes on vacation and I, we like go to a new place, you know, if I'm in that place, I immediately start thinking about what it would be like to buy a house in that place. Like if I'm like visiting a friend at a beach house, I'm like, you know what? I think maybe we need a beach house, right? And then I go to the mountains and I'm like, no, we need a mountain house. You know, like no matter where I am, I'm like, ooh, if I owned it, I would enjoy it more. The fascinating dynamic, though, is that the data proves the opposite. People report far higher levels of enjoyment on things they borrow or things that are lent to them for free than things they actually own. And this, of course, is intimately related to the pride and humility that we read about earlier in the text. If you see your money and your possessions as a gift, then joy and humility increase. If you see your money and your possessions as yours, things you own, joy goes down, pride goes up. So the difference really here is between money and possessions making you very happy or actually making you very miserable. Now, in that first sentence, the Apostle Paul is describing the internal dynamic of money and wealth and how that all gets tangled up inside of us. But then he pivots and he talks about the external dynamic, the ways we live that actually can be observed and seen by other people. He goes on to write, They are to do good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Good works. Okay. It's the kind of thing the Bible tends to talk about. Can you be more specific? What kind of good works? Next phrase. Rich and good works. Okay, Apostle Paul, you're doing your play on words thing again. This has to do with the rich and something to do with money. Okay, I get it. Next phrase, generous and ready to share. Okay, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being generous and ready to share. We are still talking about money. Now, generosity is always kind of pitted against its counter, right? Which is, you might say, like... Ungenerosity, but no one actually talks that way. So what is, what is lack of generosity? You might say hoarding, right? Keeping instead of giving. Hoarding, <laughs> counter to popular belief, hoarding is not a uniquely American problem. Hoarding is kind of an ancient sin. But hoarding is at its ugliest when you are on the poor end of things. If you're impoverished, then hoarding gets ugly. Why? Because when poorer people are hoarders, what are they hoarding? Usually it's physical possessions, a cluttered house, stuffed floor to ceiling, a living room that looks like the lobby of a Cracker Barrel, right? I said that in the first episode. People are like, I love Cracker Barrel. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's great. You can love Cracker Barrel, but you don't want to live in that lobby. That's crazy, right? Um, You know, nobody, like, you go inside a house like this and you're tempted to kind of mock or scoff. I mean, like, who needs 15 jukeboxes in their home? And if you think that's a weirdly specific illustration, that's because I once walked through a home that did actually have 15 antique jukeboxes in it. And it was a little weird, it was a little strange. Now, on the other side, what does hoarding look like if you're rich? It's very clean. And often far more impressive. I mean, a a large, well-diversified portfolio with more money than you ever need, nobody scoffs, nobody can see it. Nobody even knows it's there. If the money was physical and stacked in piles, Scrooge McDuck style, like around your house, and people had to like turn sideways just to walk past the bags of gold coins in your living room, then it would be ugly, right? But in a digital monetized system, that's not how it works hoarding can be very clean. At least it can feel that way. Now, the temptation for most of us when it comes to thinking about hoarding versus generosity, at least for me, so I won't put this on you, but the way I think about it is, if I had more, I would give more, right? That I'm not able to give as much as I would like to right now because I don't have enough. But, but if I had a lot more, then I would give a lot more. And the reality is, is that every study actually says exactly the opposite. So here are some numbers. As American Christians, the poorer we are, the higher percentage of our income we give away. Americans who make ten thousand dollars or less per year tend to give how much? Would you guess, percentage wise? Eleven point two percent of their annual income. So if you're making ten k or less a year, on average, you give away like eleven hundred of that. For Americans who make more than one hundred and fifty k a year. Tend to give, what would you guess percentage wise? 2.7. The more you make, the lower percentage you tend to give. The most generous demographic of Americans by far, by percentage, is black Protestants. Our black brothers and sisters in the church are leading the way when it comes to generosity by percentage. Now, this text, this little this little section ends with these, these words, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation against the future. And again, it's a play on words. The most rational explanation to save lots and lots of money is to save for the future, right? <laughs> to lay a good foundation for your future and the future of your kids and the future of your grandkids, right? Legacy money, that's the idea. And this text, let's be clear, is not threatening you or your legacy or your kids or your grandkids. It's not threatening their future. It's not saying it doesn't value their future. It's actually asking you a very kind and compassionate question about your future and your kids' futures and your grandkids' futures. It's asking them and asking you, well, what of their future? What kind of future are you planning for? Is it only the future of this mortal life? If so, you haven't really planned nearly far enough into the future. You actually need to do more future planning all the way into the life to come. And then this final phrase, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In the biblical imagination, you can only hold on to one thing at a time. And that just offends me because I would like to hold on to lots of things all at the same time. But the surest way to lose your grip on real life, to, the surest way, listen, to lose your identity is to try to create it to try to create it with your lifestyle funded by your wealth. If you find yourself trying to build an identity, you're actually in the process of losing your identity. In the logic of the Bible, you can't hold on to two competing identities at the same time. One of them will always win in the end. And and you might not be someone who's a Christian or believe the Bible at all, so you might not believe any of that that I just said. However, I would offer to you that I think you actually know this in other parts of your life. even if if you don't know it when it comes to faith. If you try to take a tight grip on your money and try to hold on to your spouse, but you will never prioritize one over the other, which one will you lose? You will lose your spouse, right? If you take a tight grip on your money and then you try to hold on to your friendships and you'll never prioritize one over the other, which one will you lose? You'll lose your friendships, if you try to keep a tight hold on your money and try to hold on to Jesus and you're never willing to choose one over over the other, which one will you lose? You will lose Jesus. Money always wins the tiebreaker. Do you know why? Why? Because money is the facilitator and funder of identity. So money is perfectly happy to let you dabble in lots of secondary identities and hobbies. You want to use money to elevate your lifestyle to prove how successful you are? Go for it. You want to save up money to assuage your anxiety about the future? Great. You want to give a little bit of money to the church to ease your guilt? That's cute. Knock yourself out. As long as the money stays on the throne. Money is fine to let you have mistresses and concubines and flings and affairs as long as you always come home to your real spouse, right? To money. And so many of us are holding on to both Jesus and money at the same time. And you cannot root your identity in Jesus while practicing your identity in your money and your lifestyle. And this is exactly the idea that Jesus is going after in Mark chapter 8. And he's not doing it in a mean way or a judgmental way or a shaming or condemning way. He speaks these words out of love. This is one of those situations where Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, but he raises his voice a little bit so everybody in the crowd can hear him. That's why in Mark chapter 8, the text says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Listen, in order to understand what Jesus is getting at here, you've got to remember, Jesus was and is the co-creator with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He possesses all things. As Abraham Kuyper, uh, the theologian, writes, over every square inch of creation, God declares, mine. Jesus, the one who possesses all things. There's nothing that does not belong to him. So Jesus comes as the one who has all the wealth. And what does he do with it? He gives it away. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, in addition to this, Jesus was and is the author of life. John chapter 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Never has there been anybody more full of life than Jesus. And yet, what did he do with his wealth? He gave it away. What did he do with his life? He gave it away. And that word life here in Mark chapter 8 is, that word, is a word in Greek, uh, psyche. It's from which we get all of our words about psychology or the psyche of the inner self of a person. It's it's personhood, it's selfness. Y'all, it's identity. So a more literal reading of the text might go something like, whoever would save their identity will lose it. But if we'll lose their identity for my sake and for the gospel, we'll find it. Jesus has the life and the identity and the wealth, and he gives all it away. The the life of Jesus, you might say, is, is like a life of dispossession, of giving himself away, dispossessing himself, and he does so for us. And listen, the good news of the gospel is that this not only benefits us, there also is an invitation for us here. And by that, I mean, this benefits us. Jesus gives his life away, and he does this to ransom and redeem and renew us, He draws us into the family of God and he gives us the gift of salvation, eternal life. All of that is absolutely true. But there's also an invitation for this life, that the invitation of the gospel is to begin to walk with Jesus in a life of dispossession, a life of beginning to give your own life away, just as your Savior gave his own life away. And the good news of this, is not bad news, it's good news. The good news of this is that Jesus was most fully human when he gave himself away. And the same is true for you. You are most fully yourself when you're giving yourself away. The gospel is the paradoxical good news that a life in Jesus of dispossessing your life now will result in possessing eternal life forever. This is how you lay hold of that which is truly life. This is how, in the language of Mark 8, this is how to save your life. For eternity, yes, but listen, this is a really important distinction. Eternity's starting now. There's a a really big error that we gotta be super careful not to make, okay? This is a random place for a caveat, but we gotta be careful here. This is not just about delayed gratification. This is about a new kind of life beginning now. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I get what he's saying. Be poor now, be rich forever. No, you missed it. This is not about delayed joy. Be poor now so you can be rich in heaven. This is about being satisfied in God now. This is about joy now and then lasting forever. So as we conclude, let's just think together about how to practice the gospel as it relates to identity and wealth and possessions. If a new identity in Jesus has not already transformed the way you spend your money, invest your money, give away your money, then perhaps a deeper conversion is needed. If a new identity in Jesus has not dramatically transformed the way I conceive of my lifestyle and use my clothes, car, house, neighborhood, school, hobbies, and all the material goods of my life, then a deeper conversion is needed for me. How do you start? How do you start practicing the gospel in regard to identity and money and possessions? It starts in a great place. Step one is such a great one, and it's not what you think. We go back to the text and we just view it through the lens of the gospel. God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It begins with grateful enjoyment. God's already given you so much. And before you even think about giving anything away, first, enjoy it and be grateful. Walk through your home, touch everything, and say, Thank you, thank you. Thank you over and over. Open your bank account. And whether there's $5 or 50 million, thank you. Get in your car or on your bike. Thank you. Eat lunch this afternoon. Thank you. Try to say thank you for every single thing. And you'll find out that there are too many things. There aren't enough minutes in the day for you to say thank you for all of the good gifts that God has given you. Practice grateful enjoyment. And then do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and share. You know, generosity, you might think of that as proactive giving. Being ready to share, you might think of that as reactive giving. And this is this is where we're gonna end, guys. Proactive giving. I look at what I have, I determine my needs, and I have to be really careful, because I'm a white American, <laughs> to be really careful about the difference between a need and a want, because those get all tangled up in my mind, right? So I need some help thinking about that. So I determine my needs, including the responsibility to save for the future. That's still real, of course. But then I give the rest away and I practice a yearly tithe of 10% of my gross pre-tax income. But then I also give out of my accumulated wealth if I have a surplus and I need help thinking about what is surplus and what is need, right? And if I have money sitting in investment accounts that I don't need, then I have what we might call a joyful duty, a delightful obligation, a splendid requirement to give to those that have need. And as I think about doing this, I recognize I am absolutely going to need other people to look at how much I have to help me do this well. Because, as we said all the way back in the beginning, sometimes what's in your wallet is more private and personal than who's in your bedroom, right? And so sometimes it feels like the deepest, most private part of my life that I'm least willing to let anybody else see Is how much money I have, right? So if you invite somebody into that, into see that, it's going to feel so terrifyingly exposing, right? It's going to feel like they're seeing the real you. And that's where the gospel comes into play. And that's where you need the gospel message to say to you, you are not your money and your possessions. So when you have a dear, trusted friend that you trust enough to let them see your bank account to see how much you earn and save and spend and give they are not seeing the real you because that's not who you are right now what you do need is you need help right and that's where they can actually be a true friend and a gift to you you are not your money and your possessions that is not your true self but you might need help practicing stewardship there And if you don't know anybody in need, then give it to the church who will then redistribute it to the needy. You might not know this, but churches get asked for money by people all the time and what a joy it would be if we had even more to give away. Now, that's proactive giving. Last one, reactive giving. In the text, be ready to share. Being ready to share means I'm not offended when people ask me for money or ask to borrow my stuff. My heart is, is prepared to say yes. The pump is primed. I'm almost hoping that I get asked so that I can say yes. I know uh, some of you feel like you have very few resources. Others you feel like you you have lots of resources. Maybe even you're embarrassed about how much resource you have. No matter where you are on that spectrum, think about what it would mean for you to begin to share all of those things. If you have a house, whether it's a small little studio apartment or a great big beautiful home, fill it with people much as you can. Let that, door, that front door just swing open and closed all the time. People coming in and coming out of your home, using your home. Don't let it sit empty. Some of you, a handful of you might have a vacation home, like a river house or a beach house or a mountain cabin or something. Share it. Bless someone who can't afford to go on a vacation. Don't let it sit empty. Be ready to share and be delighted when somebody asks. If you have a car, maybe a nice car, and you know people who actually don't have a luxury vehicle, what a a fun gift it would be to let them borrow it every once in a while, to borrow it when they take somebody out on a date, right? How fun would that be, both for you and for them? Share it. Don't let it sit parked in your garage doing nothing. Share it. If you have a boat, if you have a boat, you know, there's only one thing better than having a boat. It's having a friend who has a boat, right? (laughs) So much better, don't sit there feeling guilty about your boat. Share it. Put it to use. Share your clothes. This might feel a little bit strange, but I don't, think, I don't think this is too much of a stretch. If you know somebody who's relatively the same size as you, swap clothes with each other instead of both of you going shopping, right? Do you, what will that do for your, if you shared a wardrobe with somebody, what's that gonna do for your friendship? Oh, it's gonna bring you so much closer together, isn't it? When we share with each other, what happens to the relationships? They grow, it is kind of funny. They grow stronger. When you practice this kind of sharing of possessions, it bleeds over into practicing belonging and community and the sermon's over and I'm not gonna get started on a second one. That's a different sermon for a different day, right? But all of this is so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's the main thing. If you don't take anything else away, please take this. You are most truly yourself when you give yourself away. So as we take up these practices, we begin to taste true life. Our pride shrinks. We become more humble. Hope in God grows. We enjoy what we have even more. We experience the fun of generosity. We experience the community of sharing. We begin to taste just a little bit of heaven. Life's not paradise, not even close, but the kingdom of heaven breaks through just a little bit. And our true selves that real identity begins to break through just a little bit too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are not our money or our possessions. Thank you that there is a true identity in you and that it is found not as we build a lifestyle, but as we give ourselves away. Oh, Lord Jesus, please help us to receive this as gospel good news. And then please help us to practice it in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.